This week and every week, Life and Crimes is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. If you like the podcast and want to support it, go to heraldsun.com.au forward slash Andrew Rule and click on any article to begin. It's one of Melbourne's finest inner suburban areas. But bad things can happen there too. The price tag doesn't always protect you. Les Sambas' murder is one of the standout unsolved cases in Victoria and probably in Australia. This is Life and Crimes. This week, we'll look at the second part of our series on unsolved crimes of the decade. It's clear that prison can take a toll on some people. An example I would suggest is the formerly cocky racing identity, John Nicolick, who once was known as an arrogant, nasty and overbearing little man, but has appeared very crestfallen since his arrest on a trans-Pacific yacht cruise when he and his wife, Yvette, and a couple of crew members docked in Fiji en route from South America back in June 2018, 18 months ago. John Nicolick had more front than Myers, but it was ill-advised of him to go to America with his wife and friends to buy a yacht in Florida, which happened to be called Shenanigans, and then to sail it down to South America to Colombia, probably the cocaine capital of the world, and then to depart from Colombia and sail across the Pacific with a large amount of cocaine and other drugs and indeed some illicit firearms on board. It suggests that John Nicolick was desperate or deluded or both, but his bravado was swiftly exposed to stupidity when the Fijian authorities grabbed him as the yacht entered port in Fiji. He was arrested along with his wife, Yvette, but she was later acquitted. They found that there was no case to answer for her. He was given 23 years, with a minimum of 18. Apparently, the Fijian authorities didn't take kindly to the smart-mouthed Australian criminal turning up in port with a yacht full of coke. Now, Nicolick's criminal behaviour, which of course included carrying a pistol or two on the boat, could only add to the whispers that he could easily be a prime suspect for the death of Les Samba in inner Melbourne back in early 2011. Les Samba's murder that year is one of the standout unsolved cases in Victoria and probably in Australia. If Nicklick was not the actual trigger man, then was he the one who thought he was smart enough to get away with setting up the hit? This is the question that hangs over the Samba killing. Now, Les Samba, for those who have forgotten, was a sort of racing identity that someone like Nicklick no doubt wanted to be. Samba was the sort that inhabits the shark-infested waters between the racetrack and the underworld, clipping the ticket on the black money siphon from the dark side to the track side, converting hidden stashes of cash into big numbers lodged in betting accounts and bank accounts. Les Samba outshone the likes of John Nicolick at every level, but there were similarities. Samba was always a handsome man, even in middle age. 
Nicolick was not quite the pretty boy that his jockey brother Danny was, but as a young man, Nicolick was good-looking before the soft life caught up with him. He was a good talker. He could turn on the charm when it suited, although with him, his nasty streak was close to the surface. Both Samba and Nicolick could claim to be professional horsemen, despite their other more murky interests. Samba's reputation as a good judge of horses outshone Nicolick's. Nicolick was an essentially small-time trainer who fancied himself as a punter and a race fixer and an all-round smarty. He'd trained horses in Malaysia, which is interesting in the context of uh, what happened to Samba. He'd trained horses in Queensland and he'd trained horses in Victoria. And in each jurisdiction, it's fair to say that he had a bad name. The fact is that Les Samba's knowledge of racehorses and bloodstock probably helped get him killed because when someone, when some anonymous person approached him with a tempting offer to earn commission through buying several million dollars worth of yearlings at the Melbourne yearling sales in 2011, he jumped at the chance and he came from interstate to attend the sales. Les Samba was last seen leaving the Crown Metropole Hotel on the evening of February 27. Not long afterwards, he met an unknown person or people in Middle Park outside number 299 Beaconsfield Parade. Now we mention that number not because it has anything to do with the people that own 299 Beaconsfield Parade or who live there. It's nothing to do with them. It just sounds as if it was an easy address for the anonymous people to give to Les Samba to meet him in the street. And perhaps the address connected with those people was further away, you know, up or down the street or in a nearby street. It's hard to know. 299 is one of those numbers that's easy to remember. It looks as if Les Samba was ambushed. It looks as if he met someone that he knew or thought he knew and then the conversation became an argument and then a gun was produced and he was shot. And then after he fell to the ground in the street in Beaconsfield Parade, he was actually shot in the head. So it was a very calculated killing. It's interesting to note that the police found empty cartridge shells from more than one weapon. And it is not proven, but it's possible that Samba was ambushed by more than one armed man. As often happens in these things, the Homicide Squad had too many leads. Somebody like Les Samba had led a long and shady life involved in racing, illegal gambling. He'd been connected with the notorious Abe Saffron in Sydney and in Adelaide. He'd been involved in the you know, sex industry and clubs and all that sort of stuff. He had, in fact, been involved with a man who'd been shot dead on a property in Queensland and so, over the course of a very active and shady life, Les Samba could easily have acquired the sort of enemies that wanted to do away with him. The question is, who did it in Middle Park on that night in February 2011? Was it somebody from interstate who took the chance to kill him in Melbourne? Because it was easier that way. Did those people, if they were from interstate... Did those people use someone known to Samba to set him up? Someone like, in fact, John Nicolick? These are the things that the Homicide Squad 
still wonder about and are still looking at. Because one thing has been suggested and has been looming over this case all these years, and that is that someone known to Les Samba called him from a public telephone in a bayside suburb and set up the meeting and set up effectively the ambush. And why anyone in this era when everyone carries at least one mobile phone and some people carry two, why anyone would use a public telephone to do that suggests that they knew they were up to no good and that they didn't want their telephone calls traced by the police. Now, I don't know who that person was that made the phone calls to Les Samba, but there's an even money chance that it was John Nicolick, now locked up in Fiji for 23 years, and therefore we can talk about him fairly frankly. What we don't know is whether John Nicolick and people associated with John Nicolick wanted Les Samba dead, or whether he was just a convenient cat's paw used by others, outsiders, who wanted Les Samba dead. Les Samba died in Beaconsfield Parade, Middle Park. It's one of Melbourne's finest inner suburban areas. It's a place where the great and the good elbow each other out of the way to buy very expensive houses and apartments. But bad things can happen there too. The price tag doesn't always protect you. A socialite grandmother called Jeanette Moss found this out in a tragic way back in January 2014. That was the day that Jeanette was found dead inside her apartment in Middle Park. She had upper body injuries and a sheet twisted around her neck. And police said that Miss Moss, the wife of the late one-time lingerie Baron Hell Moss, had let her killer inside or that the killer knew how to get into the apartment. Now, some of her jewellery was stolen, including a watch, rings and a necklace. But some other pieces, which were actually worth quite a lot more money, were left behind. This could perhaps suggest that the thief didn't know what they were doing, uh, that the thief panicked and didn't look properly, that the thief just grabbed what was obvious and bolted. It's hard to know what it means, if anything. It's now almost six years since Jeanette Moss's body was found by a neighbour back in the heatwave of that week in January 2014. Whoever killed Jeanette must have known that the security camera in the lobby of the apartment building didn't work. If not, the killer was unbelievably lucky to fluke finding a building with a useless camera. But you'd be surprised who might know. On the face of it, it should have been a fairly easy crime to solve. But strangely, the police seem no closer to an arrest today than when Jeanette Moss's body was found. They didn't get an early arrest. They didn't get an easy break. And so the trail swiftly grew cold. Once they thought about it, the police realised that the supposed secret of the security camera not working was probably known by everybody that had ever worked in the place. Everybody that had ever lived or stayed at the place probably knew that. Probably a whole series of tradesmen who'd visited one of the 36 apartments to do necessary work knew that the camera wasn't working. It's the sort of information that would filter around the neighbourhood and dozens of people might have known 
that the camera wasn't working. That, of course, widens out the pool of potential suspects. When I went down to Jeanette Moss's apartment block to talk to people who lived there, one of them told me that the wire to the camera had been cut for years. It wasn't until Jeanette's death that it was fixed. And the other thing that's been fixed since her death is the antiquated master key system that almost anyone could use to get past the inner door into the supposedly secure liftwell area. The residents there now have modern fobs that can't be duplicated. But all that came far too late to save Jenny Moss. Back in the month when she was killed, it was possible that anyone who'd done maintenance work in the building might have had access to the master key. Master keys, of course, are not supposed to be copied, but you can bet they are. Besides, a visitor with a plausible manner wouldn't need a key if he, let's assume he, but perhaps she, had ingratiated himself or herself with a friendly and trusting 69-year-old preoccupied with preparing her apartment for her upcoming 70th birthday. Mrs Moss was a stylish woman who tried to keep her apartment up to scratch. She'd been determined to have it all fixed up to host her family and friends arriving for her big day in February. She wanted a fine crack in the wall plastered over and painted. She told friends she'd already had her sofas professionally cleaned, ready for when her daughter arrived from London for the big day. Because of her illness, she depended on outside help for anything but light housework. It's hard for police then and now to know exactly who came and went in the last few months of Jeanette Moss's life. All that's known is that whoever killed her didn't force their way in and they didn't leave fingerprints. Rule number one in the Homicide Handbook is to eliminate the victim's nearest and dearest. The obvious thing for detectives is, okay, who's related to this lady? Who knows her? Who's the neighbours? Who's her friends? Who's somebody that might have fallen out with her or stands to gain from the will or really, really wants to get her jewellery, whatever? So in this case, that would be... In the first instance, her adult son, a married businessman of impeccable character, and his wife and cousins. But by the time the investigators eliminated the family from the inquiry, rightly, the killer's trail was cooling and growing cold. It wasn't like the Wales King Society murders back in 2002, which most listeners will recall. There is, in fact, some coincidental links Both Jenny Moss and Margaret Wales King are described as socialites. Both were 69 when they died. Mrs Moss knew Margaret Wales King's sister Di Yeldum, dumped his mother's Mercedes in Middle Park after killing her and his stepfather Paul King. But the truth was that the detectives smelt Matthew Wales' guilt almost immediately. It just took them a little while for the charade to play out but they never had any such walk-up start in this Moss case. The second thing police would look at is whether Mrs Moss had formed some romantic attachment with some person who might then do her harm. The police looked into that and they confirmed that, in fact, this woman who actually had a terminal illness had no romantic attachments of the sort that, you know, could have soured and ended 
in a fatal confrontation. She was closely connected with a group of old friends and spoke to most of them every day. In fact, it was her failure to get in touch with one of her closest friends that led the friends to wonder what had happened to her and to discover her body. So much for the uh, known knowns, as they say in the White House. Next were the known unknowns. That is, anyone who might have had access to the apartments for some reason. After that comes the toughest challenge for investigators. A random predator with no connection to the victim. Someone like Jill Mars killer Adrian Bailey. This is the unknown unknown. And without specific surveillance footage or a suspect known for similar fact offences, the police need a tip-off. The trouble is, they often get too many. And that's what happened in the case of Jeanette Moss. The police got plenty of tip-offs, but none of them held water. In fact, there was one lead that made the police very interested. Mrs Moss had come into contact with someone that her friends described as a con man with disturbing overtones. One described him as weird, a bit of a sicko. He seemed to prey on older women. He distributed brochures in the wealthier suburbs, offering his services as a handyman. And uh, he often boasted that he'd befriended several older women and was confident he would get into their wills. He moved around a lot, this guy, but he mostly boarded in Albert Park, a five-minute walk from Mrs Moss's apartment. When news of the murder broke in January six years ago, a particular woman immediately thought of this man, a man who uses two surnames, that is the one on his passport and the one that he'd inherited from his stepfather. So he's a a shifty sort of guy, or he, he seems that way. She told police that at first she thought he looked kind of trustworthy, but I realised that he was a con man and a leech, and he was also an aggressive person with a bipolar personality, all of which sounds like a red-hot suspect, which goes to show why a policeman's lot is not a happy one. As far as the experts are concerned, the handyman might be a con man and a thief, but he's no killer. In fact, six years later, detectives say that the best lead is to trace the jewellery still missing from Mrs Moss's flat. Of a handful of items, two stand out. One is a Ferguson family ring that Mrs Moss inherited from her late sister. The, The other is a gold and diamond necklace given to her by her late husband. Find those, solve the crime. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week with something else. Please comment or rate it on whatever platform you're using. And if you haven't done it already, please subscribe. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.